0: Welcome to the show. From all good tales, it's Media Moments. A show about those strange, weird, unique and often bizarre times when the world changed forever in an instant. I'm Jack Murray. In this episode, the story behind a famous book and the media moment a publisher realised it could be one of the greatest ever written. To create great literature takes extraordinary human effort it requires focus, dedication, and often no little pain. Great literature is prophetic yet timeless. It acts as a master key in a playbook to understand the complexities of the world. This moment is about the creation of great literature. At some point on December 9, 1948, the postman arrived at 7 John Street, Bloomsbury, London, the address of publishing house Secker and Warburg. A handsome terraced office, in a city still recovering from the bombing and terror of the Second World War. Amongst the letters was a large package addressed to the principal, Mr Frederick Warburg. He knew when he glanced at the Scottish stamp what the envelope contained. This was the draft manuscript he'd been waiting for for over two years. He was excited as he prized open the envelope and began to read. It grabbed him from the opening line. It was a cold day in early April. And a million radios were striking 13. As he feverishly raced through the opening pages, the bleak and dangerous life of the central character, Winston Smith, began to unfold. With every new page, he found himself deeper into a dark and depressing totalitarian world. The language was rich with description. The words hanging there, yet instantly sticking in his mind. Big brother. Doublethink. Thought police. Room 101. Newspeak. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. He was struck by the political power of the book and the fear that it would instill in readers. He completed his report on the book with the line, It is a great book, but I pray I may be spared from reading another like it for years to come. In this moment, Frederick Warburg didn't know the impact that George Orwell's novel 1984 would have on the world or how amazing it was that the finished manuscript ever arrived on his desk. For George Orwell, or Eric Blair as he was known, the birth of the novel 1984 started so differently. He had a burning urge to escape his life in the oppressive damp and smog-riven streets of London. As the war entered its final year in 1944, Orwell and his wife Eileen lived in a small rented flat in North London. He had just finished writing his novella, Animal Farm, which was ready for publication. George and Eileen both desperately wanted to start a family, and got the opportunity to adopt a child through Eileen's sister, who was a doctor. Then in June of that year, during a German air raid, a flying V-1 bomb struck their apartment building. In an instant, it destroyed their home, but thankfully they were safe. Orwell scrabbled around the rubble looking for his books, before carrying them away in a wheelbarrow. In their new home, they were joined by a baby boy, who they named Richard Horatio Blair, and Orwell got a job as a war correspondent for The Observer, and all seemed well. While he was on duty covering the war in Europe, Eileen was scheduled to go to hospital for a routine hysterectomy. George paid little heed to the operation, more focused on his journalism. She died tragically under anaesthetic on the 29th of March 1945. Suddenly, Orwell was a widower and a single parent, eking out a living. To cope with the sea of grief and remorse, he threw himself into his writing. In 1945 alone, he wrote over 110,000 words for many different publications. It was at this point that Observer editor David Astor stepped in to offer him a lifeline. His family owned an estate on the remote Scottish island of Jura in the Inner Hebrides. There was a house, Barnhill, at the northern tip of the island. It overlooked the sea at the top of a pothole track. It was small with four cramped bedrooms above a spacious kitchen. Initially, Astor offered it to Orwell for a holiday. He was bowled over at Orwell's enthusiasm for the Rocky Outpost. Orwell longed to get away from the distractions of literary London to write a new book. He had a new idea a story of an oppressive world, worse than anyone could imagine, based on communist Russia. He knew what was facing him. He had previously described writing a book as a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a long bout of some painful illness. In May 1946, Orwell took the train to Jura. It was a very risky move, as he was not in good health. He had suffered from a bad chest. He was joined by baby Richard and his sister Avril. Life was primitive. There was no electricity. Orwell used gas to cook and heat water. Storm lanterns burned paraffin. In the evenings, he also burned turf. He was still chain-smoking rolled-up cigarettes. The fog in the house was cosy, but not healthy a battery radio was the only connection to the outside world. He got to work on his new book. He called the working draft The Last Man in Europe. As his health disimproved in the cold Scottish weather, Orwell worked at a feverish pace. He took to the bed to type. The clacking sounds reverberating through the house. But in November, he collapsed with inflammation of the lungs and was soon diagnosed with TB. As he left hospital in the spring of 1948, he received an anonymous letter from his publisher Warburg, in which he asked pointedly about the new novel. It really is important from the point of view of your literary career to get it by the end of the year, and indeed earlier if possible. It was a desperate race against time, as Orwell's health was in free fall. He was bedridden and only able to write for a few hours a day. He even took on the ghastly task of retyping all of the 125,000 words of the final manuscript himself for the December deadline. As he approached the deadline, the book's title had now changed. In a letter, he wrote I am inclined to call it 1984 or The Last Man in Europe, but I might just possibly think of something else in the next week or two. Let's return to the office of publishers Secker and Warburg on December 9th, 1948. Eric Warburg had just received the first manuscript of the novel 1984. Almost instantly, he recognised its quality. He described it as, It is amongst the most terrifying books I have ever read. An internal memo at the publisher's noted, If we can't sell 15 to 20,000 copies, we ought to be shot. By now Orwell had left Jura and checked into a TB sanatorium. As word of 1984 began to circulate, David Astor planned an observer profile. Orwell joked to Astor that it wouldn't surprise him if you had to change the profile into an obituary. 1984 was published on the 8th of June 1949 and was almost universally recognised as a masterpiece. Orwell's health continued to decline. In October 1949, in his room at University College Hospital, Orwell married Sonia Brownell, who he got to know during his illness. David Astor was best man. It was a fleeting moment of happiness. He lingered into the new year of 1950. In the small hours of the 21st of January, he suffered a massive hemorrhage in hospital and died alone. The news was broadcast on the BBC the next morning. Avril Blair and her nephew, still up on Jura, heard the report on the Battery Radio in Barnhill. Richard Blair remembers the shock of the news. His father was dead, aged 46. David asked to arrange for Orwell's burial in the churchyard at Sutton Courtenay in Oxfordshire. He lies there now, as Eric Blair, between H.H. H. Asquith and a local family of gypsies. To create great literature takes extraordinary human effort. It requires focus, dedication, and often no little pain. 1984 has sold over 30 million copies and is recognized as one of the greatest novels ever written. It allows us to see ourselves and our world, while at the same time giving us a window to the future. Even today, it seems more relevant than ever. Media Moments is brought to you by All Good Tales. There's only one way to resonate, and that's with a story. If you need to connect with your audience, we can help you. We help organisations create beautifully crafted stories through podcasts, brand newsrooms, PR, presentations, and strategy. Find us on at on Twitter or email jack at allgoodtails.com. Media moments can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Acasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. This episode was written by me, Jack Murray. Sound supervision is by Al Dunn at Unique Media. Join us next time when we hear the story of an Aer Lingus flight in 1981 that created a media moment that would change the world forever.